You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because it beats doom scrolling on Twitter. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. And this is episode 29, Cornerstones and Building Blocks. back listeners um for another exciting and fun world building episode um i'm really excited about today's topic um which is cities and city infrastructure and architecture partially because it came to us from one of our listeners actually through um some we should talk about cities and we should talk about architecture questions into our potpourri episode that we had a couple um, weeks ago so I think we all saw those questions and said, we need to talk about that more. That's more, more. than a, a little quick one-off question. So I'm excited. Um, but before we get going, do we have any announcements, things for the good of the cause? I do. I, I have two things, in fact, one of which is world building related and one of which is just, if you like hearing me talk related. Um, the the first one is that a couple days ago, we had the cover reveal for Giveaway Tonight, my second book, Ooh. which comes out in November. And it's it was so cool. pretty, and I'm so happy about it. So that can be found, you know, on my website, and I'll be plastering it everywhere from now until November. The second thing is that I am recording tomorrow from when we're recording this. So it will have been three weeks ago by the time you guys hear this, listeners. Um, a podcast with a friend of mine who who works in the Shakespeare world that I came from, and it's actually not even about Shakespeare. It's about the rhetoric of Hamilton, which is one of my pet favorite things in the world. And it's in advance of the movie launching on Disney+. Plus. So I'll be spending an hour talking about that. And I'm super excited. So if you like listening to me talk about things and get excited about them, and you would like to hear me say words like epizuxis and calyptoton a lot, then tune in for that. <laughs> it'll be on. Fantastic. It's through Sweet Tea Shakespeare and it'll be on their podcast available after we record it and all that. Yes, and I'm sure we'll all be like boosting on Twitter and stuff like that. So a yes. reminder, listeners, if you are not following us like on Twitter and, and whatnot, um, you, you miss fantastic content like Cass waxing poetic about the rhetoric of Hamilton <laughs> if, you, if you don't follow us. Don't you, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you have the unique distinction of being the only person whose Patreon is, is supported by Lin-Manuel Miranda? That is correct. I am person he follows on on Patreon, and yeah, it's awesome. No pressure. No, <laughs> no pressure. pressure. Yeah, <laughs> like he started that about two thirds of the way through the Hamill blog, and all of a sudden it was like, oh shit! Now I have to think about that. I was not thinking about this when I started. Okay, sure. This is great. This is fine. It's fine. This is not freaking me out at all. It's awesome. <laughs> Anyone else have exciting news? I sort of do. It's you know, officially my home con of Armadillo Con has finally decided, yes, we are going to just have a virtual con. It's going to be at the end of August. So oh. the details of that are still like they're still figuring that out. But they were finally able to straighten out that that's what they were going to do. So that's going to be happening. And I don't know all of what it will entail, but I will surely be appearing but the other cool thing about that is it is going to be completely free for everyone so because oh, the cool i mean because a lot of the times these virtual cons they've still been like yeah but our membership is still gonna be 150 dollars and you're like mm, i'm not too keen on paying 150 dollars to sit on my couch and watch you people on the screen um <laughs> as much as i love all the people in this industry but this one is going to be completely free and thus, you know, everyone everywhere can be able to see what we're doing here. And hopefully you'll think that we are cool people. I don't know. I, I have my doubts about myself all the time along those lines, but we'll see. No. I might edit that out later. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about cities in fantasy, which as Yay. all of our listeners or anybody who's picked up my books can imagine are things that I've got thoughts about yes. this yeah well and we all have um somewhat urban settings in our novels yeah. which 
maybe kind of an unusual thing that you get three fantasy authors together and we all have a pretty <laughs> a pretty different urban environments but still they're all urban environments which is it's kind of cool um but yeah i mean i feel like there are a lot of really cool cities in fantasy fiction i mean aside from from our own do you guys have any favorites Ankh-Morpork! pork <laughs> <laughs> Ankh-Morpork, Pork, the main city in Discworld, I think is just one of the most gorgeous, chaotic constructions of all time. Um, particularly because, you know, Terry Pratchett had the ability to develop it over so many novels, and, and you get so many different facets of that city, and you see it change over time, too, which is really cool. You see it adapt to new technologies and to new species coming to live there, you know, as they, they adjust to trolls and golems and all kinds of things. Uh, it's absurdist and it's you know it's comedy fantasy but it is still like such a well-developed world and so reflective of you know cities as we know and love them from real life that that's just that's always top of my list when i think about fantasy cities i'm definitely a big fan of i'm make sure i pronounce it is it john loon is that the city in jade city i believe that's the name or that might be the name of the island I could be having that wrong, but yeah, I really love the work that Fonda did in in Jade City in general, in her world building and in her city building of of that city. And and shout out to one of the coolest maps I think in oh yeah in in books that I've ever seen. I love the city map in in Jade City. It is very cool. And what's another good one? There, I had another one in the back of my brain, and it has vanished. So. Give me um, something, Rowetta. Save me from my one from that my also popped brain. into my brain was uh, <laughs> London Below in Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, mm. and that one's fun because it's you know it's related to the London that we know and love, but it's also a totally different thing, and it's it's wild and crazy. And I thought that was a fun development. Yes, which is also a cool thing that you can do if you're not necessarily doing secondary world. You can do a lot of primary world urban fantasy type things or like what you did Cass, where you're taking a real city and augmenting it or or adding to it the additional aspects to make your story work be it like a secret underground of london or just the tweaks you do to make to make your historical fantasy into the fantasy elements so i feel like you know we we think about our our space and there's the kind of, you know, there's assumption that you're, you're going to have cities. But if we're going to choose versus presume, why have cities anyway? Why do cities crop up? Why do you want or need a city in a fantasy second world? Like, do you want to delve into, like, historically, well, like, why do cities rise up in the first place? Yes. Or why, why use them as, as a storytelling engine? I Cause... think both of those <laughs> questions are very good. They're brought, they are very good. I mean... Cities grow up because we are all social monkeys and that's, you know, to an extent we want to be around each other and cities are also the where you can have specialization of skills occur because if you just have people living on their own, then each person has to just do everything that they need to do to survive. They have to, you know, grow food. They have to build shelters they have to they have to make clothing they have to do every single task where once they start to congregate then you can have the more people you have who can specialize in their specific skills and then utilize those skills together to grow even further and that's i mean that's basically why cities come up and then you have to have that city become supported by the outside world and then it grows even further and it's a beautiful miraculous amazing thing I think part of what that gives you for like storytelling aspect is you can get a lot of different kinds of people and characters serving different functions and you can sort of show more viewpoints because you have so many so many more options to choose from than you do in a village of 100 where they all have to be farmers because that's their entire life not that those aren't interesting people but you can get a wider variety you know cities tend to be more diverse places than the countryside and so that opens up storytelling opportunities in a different way than someplace where your entire setting is out in, in a remote location. And cities, too, also have that, you know, element that they are not just diverse, but they're people coming together and moving in and out and kind of crossroads. 
and frequently you have cities that are are cities because they exist at the nexus of a certain trade route or mm -hmm. it's a vital port or it's the only place that you can get through the mountain pass or you know whatever you have a reason that the city is growing up and it's because a lot of people need to go through there so not only do you have like a very diverse population living there but you can often have a city where there's a lot of movement and and um change kind of happening on a daily basis as people move in and out i think you also see like if we're thinking about plot and we're thinking about stakes, there are different kinds of safety and danger in a city than you get in a country setting. It's like part of why cities exist is because you, you are sometimes safer in a large group. And if you can build a wall around your people that protects you from outside forces, but then you can also sort of have more, you know, crime and violence inside a city than you necessarily have in a more remote location where there's fewer people. So it's, there are different pressures of what, you know, the stakes might be for your characters in, in their scrap for survival or their political goals. It's not, yeah, it's just, it's not the same as you would have in a village or a forest setting. You're getting a lot of different competing pressures. And you certainly too have, you know, a different flavor of what the location can mean and what those stakes can mean to a character that they certainly don't know everyone that they live in a city with, but they might still have a very strong, this is my home city, I feel very strongly about it. Or they might not have that feeling at all. Whereas if you live in a very small village or nomadic group, like it's hard not to have a very insular, I care deeply about these people because there are 40 of us and I know each of them by name <laughs> and I know, you know, what their birthday is and which of the elk in the herd is their favorite. And, you know, th there's a different flavor there than when you're living in a, a cosmopolitan city where you know, you know, one one hundredth of the population and most of the faces you pass on the street are people that you don't know. So you can you can play with that and play with the stakes um, of the personal versus the impersonal and the scale, I think, in kind of fun ways. To, to go back to what you were saying about like where cities rise up, I think when you're doing the, the actual like world building process and trying to decide where you're putting like the city on your map and all that, that's always a crucial thing to really think about. Like, what is it about this spot that made people go, okay, this is where we're this is where we're settling down this is where we're going to do these things like is it like is it on a river or some other form of trade route or is it you know is there some resource here that became like the key resource of why we're settling down here or is this where the particularly fertile land is or there can be all sorts of reasons like i don't know if either of you have ever been to denver um yes, yes. <laughs> but like if you're if you go into denver you can you're sitting there and you just anytime you just look up and you just see the wall of the rocky mountains right there where it just freaks me out juts up. it freaks me out it is free but you can tell that like settlers were going across west and they just went no here's good <laughs> yeah yeah fuck that we noise. do not I'm need to here. go any further than right here I tell you what, I, I am descended entirely from people who looked at the Appalachian Mountains and decided that. So, like, but it is it's interesting. Like, if you look at the United States, the the East Coast cities tend to be along rivers, uh, because that was the easiest sort of form of transport when those cities were first coming up. And then across the Midwest, they're along like railroad lines. And you'd look at it and go like, if you're just looking at the topography, you're like, why is there a town here? There's no water. There's like, I, I don't know what, what possible reason is there. And it's because that actually came up on, on a wagon route or a railroad line. And so the transition was happening across the country first. And then they put a city in the middle of it, as opposed to making a road to the city. And it's just, I remember the first time I went to Kansas and realized that you would drive for like three hours in a straight line without the road bending. And I didn't, I didn't know what to do about that being from the East coast where there's not a lick of straight road you know, to be found. It was like, what is happening here? But it's about like what the resources were when the town was founded. Were you dependent on the topography or were you dependent on a piece of technology for your resources? And the importance of those towns changed. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm in Indiana, which was settled originally before the railroads came through and there were cities 
that were on rivers that were very early settlement points that were very important mm-hmm. in 1800 that have very little importance today because when the railroads came through and when the highways came through those cities were not anywhere near those routes and so they they kind of drop off in importance and you have cities that were originally like the capital of the state are now like you know little kind of small towns without much importance except for kind of cultural heritage and there's a couple nice buildings and a pharmacy called butt drugs which is the only reason to go to court in indiana let me tell you is butt drugs so (laughs) you know my god i would never stop laughing about that if i lived there so you know you've you've got the element of cities sometimes they rise up in a spot and they you know remain centers of pivotal importance for centuries and sometimes they're I mean, for lack of like a boom town that just kind of crops up because, hey, this was important. And then 50 years later, it's it's not particularly vital anymore. And I think that's a crucial thing to just delve into when you're doing like the infrastructure is think four dimensionally about like, how did something come up and maybe things come up and things fall and cities become like important centers and then become not important for whatever reason. Like these are great things to play with to give your worlds more depth and re- and verisimilitude that the idea of like something being you know this was the big cool city and now it's not like that's that's really fun to play with and i think people should do that more and how does the city grow too is a city yeah. growing kind of organically where it's sort of like tumoring out in spots randomly and (laughs) you get an area that kind of builds up and then another area over here erupts too or is it very orderly and planned and everything's in a grid or there is there an old part of the city that's you know haphazard put together you know in almost like a snail shell pattern because the first people who were building anything weren't really paying attention to much of anything except for I'm going to build a road here and a building here and oh we'll do this over here and then at some point someone comes along and says no from now on we're going to number the streets in this order and then we're going to grid them and so you have that weird like old town versus new town layering kind of happening yeah Rowan it's something really interesting which I, I just thought about how like when I think about an orderly city I think of a grid because I'm thinking of Roman forts and I'm thinking of like New York City and, and Washington, D.C. being planned on grids. But when you're building your own world, does that have to be what orderly means in terms of city planning? Could you have a city where, like, if, if spiders are very important to the culture, that their cities are very planned, but on, like, a spider web pattern where they've got, like, radials out from the center and then things connecting them? Or could it be on a spiral design? That might be a really interesting thing to play around with. I don't feel like I've seen a lot of that done in in fantasy lit i think cities tend to either follow one sort of grid model or hodgepodge model but you could really bust that up and make it an interesting part of the culture as well as the architecture i think i've seen some concentric circles and then that ends up tying into the idea of like social class and standing and Mm -hmm. which circle you're in and so you can really tie a lot of how your city is built to other you know elements of of culture too does the spider web have certain spots on it that are more sacred than others? Or does the spiral have a particular meaning that you, you know, something that's on the inside of the spiral is different than on the outside. I mean, you can really play with that stuff. Yeah. The other thing is the, the physical topography of where your city is might not lend itself too easily to it being like a grid or any other (laughs) organized thing. And you just got to do what, you need to do um i base a lot of like the descriptions of like the roads and how everything interacts in velocity revolution where it's a lot of curves and spirals and 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 rounds and such i base that off of the uh city of guanajuato in mexico where like it's just like lots of like steep drops and high hills and valley like everywhere so there's no way you can build a grid there it's just like 
Like right here, we just got to fork it off and then this goes underground and this goes up above the hill. And that's just how we have to do it. And you can play a lot with that of just of just knowing like what the geography you have it is and then what they actually can realistically build based on that. Now, of course, a lot of cities get built where they're where they are because it's relatively flat and it's easy to put grids down. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's where the city is going to rise up. No, it's it's like I said about Rome in in the potpourri episode. Like I defy you to find a right angle, and part of that is because of those seven freaking hills and the river going <laughs> through it at the same time. And it's like I remember the first time I went there and realized everything you want to go to is either at the top of a hill or on the other side of it. And it's like, man, everyone living in that city has really toned calves because you are, <laughs> you are walking up and down hills constantly. <laughs> and just the way the city naturally grew because it had to grow around, like you said, those physical barriers in a way. Yeah. Or a city like Boston, where it's just like, you know, I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, it's 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 a delight in that, like, you don't know which direction you're going. And, it, you know, this, let alone once then cars get added to the mix and like, oh, we we didn't make anything wide enough for cars, really. But <laughs> but now we no. have to. <laughs> and I think city size is an interesting question, too. Like, how big is the city that you want to work with? Um, how big are cities in your world? Anyway, I mean, you don't have to have giant metropolises or you can have huge cities depending on, you know, kind of the constraining features of the second world that you've built. Um, and there are some constraining features, I think, to city size, um, even though you can, you can always play a little bit with fantasy and probably inject magic in there to, to mitigate some of those constraining features. But I mean, if you have a city, you have to be able to feed all those people. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be able to house all those people um, without high rises um, in a modern sense that could end up very sprawling for certain sizes of population. Though, again, you can play with that, I guess, if, if you want to. Um, I'm and just like you have to get all the food in sizes, but I feel like most of our fantasy <laughs> cities are smaller than than modern um, major metropolises. Yeah, I think if you're writing like a secondary world fantasy where your city, where your technology level is, you know, equivalent to something Renaissance or Age of Sail, then like probably a city population of a million is your absolute top like it, it you can't really i don't think you can maintain a larger city than that necessarily unless there is an incredible amount of infrastructure to bring food in and bring non-food out <laughs> yes <laughs> you and your sewers man we know you love them you know do we want to just go ahead and move on to talking about the sewers now <laughs> it's I mean, I, I'm not going to get like deep into it, but be aware that you got to get you got to think about these things of like what does what happens on a, you know, citywide level to get rid of all the crap that everybody makes. Because yeah. like yeah. not just human waste, but also just trash garbage. and garbage. Yeah. And, you know, if animals are being slaughtered blood and other awful that isn't getting used elsewise but bear in mind that people are going to be really good about trying to use every single bit of of animal part that they can and yeah. that's gonna be is a thing like awful for the dogs and rat heads for the cats <laughs> they're like one of my favorite um street crier images i'm pretty sure she is selling awful and it's like awful for your dogs and i mean <laughs> But it's definitely like if you've ever been to a city where the sanitation workers were on strike, you find out just how fast that can become a huge, huge problem. Oh, yeah. But but yes, I mean, you know, you you've got all kinds of waste that a city produces um, and it, there's there are you know, carting it out methods. I'm pretty sure cities did cart um, some human waste out for like use on agricultural fields. Mm. Um, you also have a lot of just like, like leaving it in mm -hmm. the city. And I know in a lot of um, early American colonies, people use their outhouses like for everything. 
Um, and so people now will go and do archaeological digs of outhouses to find their trash because they were throwing like broken pottery and other junk into the outhouse because they apparently just didn't have regular trash pickup and so they would use their outhouse for like just and then when it's full you just move to the left and dig a new one and (laughs) but yeah like if you're if you design your city without these specific elements of infrastructure be it be it a sewage system be it trash pickup be any of that people are still going to just be like what do i do with this i guess i just throw it in the river or or what have you and that's going to either build up or create a problem or then the city's going to as a city find a solution or maybe go to hell because it didn't find a solution but but the idea of like where does this stuff go should be included in like your city plan in general like is do you have like a place where trash is collected and then dumped and like that's the worst part of town to live in because (laughs) but that that's a part of town that exists because you got to put it somewhere and i think too you know if you're if you're going to cheap out on your sewage and your trash trash collection you're going to very quickly address another city infrastructure issue which is public health yes you know so which you're probably going to have the issue of anyway because you crowd more people together and they are more likely to um pass diseases around not that we have any experience not that that that's pertinent at all all right now or something that we've discussed in current events in any way but um you know you've you've got that to kind of contend with how do you you know do do you try to control infectious disease in any way when it comes to your city do you recognize what infectious disease even really you know is but beyond that what do you what do you do about it um and one of my favorite little tidbits is that um as early as the 17th century um cities in england including london were collecting um basically like death tallies on various causes of death and printing Mm -hmm. them in magazines so that people could keep track of like how many people are dying of the plague is, is it a bad month for the plague? Should I think about maybe like bugging out to my country estate and, and would, you know, kind of have these statistics available um, yep. to keep track of what was what was happening um, in, in the infectious disease and public health world. And when it hit, I think it was 30 deaths in a week was when they had to close the theaters. So like you can think about things like that in how your city structure and your city governance and, and all of those infrastructure questions affect other things that you've done in world building, you know, things we've talked about in other uh, episodes, they all sort of connect together and, and city infrastructure can affect so much more of that than you might like consciously think about. Do you have a city where you can quarantine off a sector of it? Um, if, if there's disease in one sector, can you, you know, drop gates between sections of it and sort of temporarily wall them off? Or is it harder to keep the infection from spreading there's just there's all kinds of things to, to consider when it comes to that do you have public hospitals or any kind mm-hmm. of um health intervention in your city or is it you know is it entirely private practice is it are there um wards for people who might need to be quarantined or might fall ill i mean how do you how do you handle sick people in your city because that's a question of individual health but then it's also a question of public health yeah because like, what are the, the just in general sort of public or semi-public resources available? Like, do you have hospitals? Do you have other city workers that do specific things to make sure that things go smoothly for as many Like this, you can, all the little infrastructural jiggery-pokery that you can think about in terms of how does this get done? Who does it get done for? And who makes sure... And it gets done. Who makes sure that, like, if there's a plague and you have to tell everyone, hey, there's a plague, stay in your house. How do you get that word out? What are the, like, do you have newspapers? Do you have, you know, young boys who just go around yelling things in the streets? Do you have, do you have formalized graffiti? That is what you do to to get the word. Like, what are, what are the methodologies? Trained parrots. You know, it's, it's a thing. (laughs) It's probably not a thing, but I would love it if it was but a it thing. Could if... be. 
And when you think about that kind of like public infrastructure, it's not just about disease, it can be about other things as well. Do you have a public infrastructure to deal with homelessness? You know, do the homeless just sleep on the streets or are there shelters where they can go? Um, in a lot of medieval culture, churches and cathedrals were a place where, you know, if you were wandering or if you were kicked out of your house, you could find shelter there. You could sleep under those auspices and be safe and not be harassed. Um, and changed over time versus the vagrancy laws and things like that. But like, it was a safe place. Or is there no such safe place? Are you just out of luck? Are you out on the streets? And related, how do you deal with um, orphans? Because mm -hmm. if you're in a city, you're out and you're outside of that very tight knit village or nomadic clan or whatever, people might pass away and not have anyone to care for their kids. And um, for example, like in the 18th century, London had a, what they called the foundling hospital that children could be dropped off, pretty much no questions asked, and they would leave a receipt, um, and they would, the parent, um, if it was a parent or whoever was dropping the kid off, if it was not a parent, would leave, because um, it was frequently not an orphan, it was a child who couldn't be cared for by an impoverished, um, sometimes single mother, would leave a token of some kind, often just like a strip of fabric or a ribbon to, be, to identify the child later if they were able to collect them again. Um, so you're is... saying it's a pawn shop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. They didn't get money for them, Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> but it is just sort but of like, could. here's this thing. <laughs> I'm coming back for it yes. when I have some money. <laughs> we hope so, yes. Um, but yeah, and a lot of these, a lot of these kids, did, did, did their parent or guardian did not come back for them. Um, but, but they had a public you know infrastructure to deal with that that question right and i mean on any level of like who who fixes things who makes sure that you know that the food that's coming in to the to the city is going to the people who will then make food for people to eat and how do then do does everyone have a kitchen or are there public kitchens or do most people like eat street food or who makes the street like these are all fun little things that you can play with to make all the little spinning gears work in a way that makes sense and a lot of it in your actual writing is of course going to be invisible but if you think about these things a lot then the fact that the gears are all spinning well comes out in the work and i think one too that we don't talk about frequently until until it's a plot point um in fantasy is transportation because public transportation yeah. is a huge part of modern cities. You know, most, most if not you know, the majority of people who live in a lot of modern cities do not have personal transportation. Um, and maybe because of the technological level that a lot of us write in, we don't think about public transportation as being something to think about in a city, but you certainly can. There's no reason that you couldn't have some kind of, you know, formalized transportation system either within a city or between cities. And even just the question of, who's maintaining the roads like wasn't there yeah. didn't domino's pizza in like the last couple years have some kind of publicity stunt where they were fixing potholes i vaguely recall that it could and, be yes and it was and it was kind of like a weird cheeky thing but it was also kind of like a jab at local governments who were not <laughs> fixing potholes so it's kind of like it became a joke if you can rely on Domino's Pizza more than you can rely on your city government to get out and patch potholes. So who's doing that in your city? Is it something that, that the city government takes on? Is it something that there are some kind of private contractor? Is there some benevolent society or guild of um, tradesmen that part of, part of belonging to that is that you have to pitch in for repairs on, on public works and roads? And you can can kind of play with with those questions. And how does your city government work in general? Because that tends to be the lubrication that makes the several hundred thousand people in the same space work together as best as possible. If you have people who are nominally in charge who make sure that these things happen, how do you have your city government organized? Is it like even if it is you're like doing like a more traditional monarchy thing like so many fantasies do is the city just run by a lord who then has their you know 
whatever their circle are, or their appointees, or is it elected? Is it some combination thereof? There's a lot of there's a lot of things you can do, and that's again where you take. How does your city break down into smaller bits? Do you have specific neighborhoods? Does your city, f- can your, I'm sorry, I have like six bazillion thoughts at once. And so I'm trying to, <laughs> <laughs> Which, this is how my brain goes when I start to think about these things. Like, I think it's helpful, especially with a larger city to think about it in terms of its smaller parts and like how those smaller parts interact. Like I usually use neighborhoods, but if you, Think about it in terms of like it's also a hundred villages that just are bumped up against each other and that's how a lot of the people who live there are going to see it and how those infrastructural elements are going to work based on that fundamental idea i think that's going to create a lot more vibrancy in terms of the city you create instead of it being some sort of monolith or where it's mostly the city and a couple small subsections So I think that one thing that we might want to switch gears to is once you've got a city with all of its kind of moving parts working together, what does it look like? Like, what is the architectural flavor of the city that you're building? And how do you arrive at those decisions? I think that's related to the question of, you know, was it planned or is it organically springing up? If it's planned, it might have a more uniform look, or at least part of it might. I mean, I feel like a lot of town centers in the U.S. have a very similar look to them. Like, here's the town hall, and the post office is next to it, and they've all got this kind of brick and these kind of columns, and it's all very intentional. But then as you get further out, you're going to see things built, you know, in different decades and reflecting different architectural styles and things that have been kept up in some areas better than others. so it, it goes part and parcel with the idea of how did the city grow part of how it looks. I think also where is the city located in terms of climate and, mm-hmm. um, and expected weather patterns? Um, because like a flat roof without modern building materials is a really bad idea in heavy snow. Um, <laughs> because you need those sloping roofs for the snow to slide off of and not get so heavy that it actually smooshes through your roof because that's not a good day for anybody no um but in really hot climates a flat roof can be a great thing because it provides an open air space that people can go up on say in the evening or even sleep on roofs overnight um so you know one architectural style that that works very well in one place might be a complete disaster in the other and that can be a fun thing that you can do too is that you can have like oh yes this this particular architectural style that we're importing from over here and it's the the hot new thing and oh oh it oh it doesn't work oh i i see why we didn't do that before yeah that's okay (laughs) that was a short-lived fad oops (laughs) yeah like a area that gets daily heavy rains you're going to make different choices than an area that barely gets any rain at all. You're going to see like maybe houses that are raised up because typically you're going to get, you know, floods that could be, you know, one, two feet high. So why even, why even risk that? Why not just be two feet up to begin with because you know, you're going to flood or, or if, you know, it's almost never going to rain. You're going to design things with the idea of we're going to catch as much water as we possibly can when it does rain and things like that. You can even think about things like, um, you know, Venice, which the main Ooh, yeah. transportation there is canals rather than roads in a lot of, you know, and then now, of course, it is sinking and that's <laughs> tragic, but that worked really well for a good long period of time. But they it definitely like... Run. It has it has its own flavor. You know, Venice doesn't look like anywhere else, really, because it is so fitted to its topography and, and to the choices they made in order to be able to live in this particular place. And it, it is worth noting that a lot of times those geographic features that define how your city is built, be it like that it's so so much in half in the water that you just build canals or it's on, you know, it's right on the mouth of the river. Like, things can change that now, oh, it's sinking, or, oh, the mouth of the river has silted up, and now this is no longer a viable port. And and thus, everything about how the city works has to change, or be abandoned and die, or or evolve. And I think, too, 
thinking about again like the the looks and the aesthetics the local building materials make a huge difference yeah in what becomes like the trademark of a city or a region um i lived in southern indiana for a while and limestone used to be a major industry there and so all almost all of your you know public buildings um, most of indiana university's campus it's all limestone because that was this local you know thing that was produced and i think there was not only pride in it but it was right there so it was you know less expensive than importing something from across the country yeah well it's like the famous line of augustus that he found rome a city of brick and left it a city of marble was somewhat self-aggrandizing but there was also truth to it because the city got so much wealthier across those decades that they did start building out of marble which had to be imported was harder to work with heavier all of that stuff when they had the infrastructure and the money they could do that in a way that they hadn't been able to before and it gives a very definite look and it survives longer you know in in most places that are you know ruins now things made of more durable materials straight up last longer and so we know more about them in a lot of ways yeah, i think how your city ages is an interesting question um because I mean, wood is a very common building material um, in many places and across many eras, but a lot of wooden structures have not survived for, you know, the millennia. So you kind of imagining that, you know, w whereas I, I think we often assume stone and brick, that wood is a totally viable thing to use, too, and you can you can build a city of wood. You have to worry about it burning down. Um, yeah. I think many cities have learned that over time. <laughs> But, you know, there are certainly places with, you know, just widely accessible timber that you're you're going to have, um, you know, even your most important buildings made of wood because it's there and that's what you're going to use. And brick and stone are also no guarantee. I mean, once again, thinking about Rome, the reason that it's ruins now is because people in later centuries pillaged it for building materials. They took things that were walls and temples and important stuff and instead use them to build houses or ship them out to the country or, or all kinds of things like that. And, and the center, what had been the center of Rome became a dead zone where no one lived. The only really things that survived there were the things that got converted into Christian churches. Everything else was free game, free marble, no one's guarding it, take it. <laughs> and that happened to like Hadrian's Wall in, in England too. And, and it, so it, that also bespeaks an economic shift in the other direction, you know? when a city no longer has the resources to protect what it has built, what happens and what do people living there do when left to their own devices? <laughs> because yeah, if you need to build your own new house and hey, there's some perfectly good brick over there that's really not doing anything, why not <laughs> just take it and use it to, to build my own place? I think it'll be interesting to see too, you know, I've, I've read some interesting books about how our modern cities are going to decay because the materials we build with, you know, when you think about skyscrapers, that's harder to break down. That's harder to take apart. That's going to be harder for the elements to wear down, even if, you know, a city gets abandoned. And if you're thinking about building sort of a dystopian world, maybe something set in the future, that could be really interesting to contemplate and do some research about what would be left from these newer things, from our plastic and our metal that is different from how, you know, cities from the ancient world have decayed over time. You bastards, you blew it up. <laughs> you finally did it. <laughs> that is that, I mean, you saw it, in, of course, in Planet of the Apes, but there's this delightful trope I always love in anything, like, futuristic or post-apocalyptic of, like, that thing that, you know, survives or survives in a weird, decayed way that gets misinterpreted. And, like, I love... I love, love, love the trope where, like, the people in this, you know, in this decayed future are calling a place a thing. And then your hero, who has come from our time or whatever, gets to the thing, sees, like, the name on a sign, and then wipes the sign away, and it says something <laughs> mundane or something like that. It's a stupid trope that I love so much. <laughs> In Chicago, it's going to be the bean. Like, we all we all agree on this, right? It's going to be that damn bean. <laughs> it's going to be the but center it'll be of its own cult. With quiet reverence. Yes. Oh, yeah. The They're going to worship the bean. It's going to be like the pyramids. It's going to be. Yes. <laughs> Why did they build this bean? 
Was it? <laughs> what did it represent to the people here? So yes, include stupid random stuff in your cities too, because apparently do. we do include a lot of that. Stupid random things. Include stupid statues that twenty years later people want to tear down. <laughs> Just as an example. <laughs> When, when we like, were talking about, like, flair and things like that, the thing that it made me think of were the cow statues yes. in, in Chicago and how that was a thing. And then it got spun off and suddenly every city had to have their own version of the cow statues. And, like, some of them make sense and some of them are really freaking weird. And it's like, did you just, <laughs> did you draw last out of the box? Like, yeah. <laughs> down here on, on the Outer Banks where I live in the summer, we have winged horses, which makes perfect sense. Because we have wild horses here, and, and this is where the Wright brothers did their first flight, so you put those together. Pegasi, awesome. That makes perfect sense. Where I'm from in Richmond, it was rockfish. And it was like, <laughs> well, that's a choice. I mean, I guess technically, yes, there are rockfish. Why did we decide they were more important than other fish? Really? What? Hmm. Hmm. But like it was just it was part of that fad that went through the country, I feel like, twenty years ago, and every city had to have their mascot animal with a bunch of statues. We have bats here, and so there are there nice. are several bat, bat statues nice. in, in, in Austin. <laughs> it's well we we have like the infamous like bats that live under this one bridge. And so <laughs> and so that becomes like this nightly event. Especially in the summer. I mean, not right now, obviously, but where like people <laughs> congregate on the bridge and under the bridge at sunset to watch the bats come out. It's actually really cool because it's like thousands of bats <laughs> all coming out at once. But like, that's another thing you can do is what is the stupid thing about your city that people are like, yeah, you like when you're there, you got to see the bats or something like that. Like, <laughs> Again, that's a great way to just add that little bit of extra flavor because every city has that stupid thing, whether it's whether it's like some specific natural event that occurs or, you know, you got to see this statue over there or you got to have this really bad sandwich at this one place that everyone kind of agrees is terrible, but it's our sandwich, damn it. <laughs> and thus it represents our city. I think it's interesting. Something that that sort of brings up, though, is the idea of, you know, if each city has something, how many cities does your culture have? Yeah. I feel like there's sort of a fantasy trope of the city. <laughs> I'm going to the city, the only one in the entire nation. Um, I know I've seen, you know, memes about that. Like, you know, you're in a fantasy novel when <laughs> you, yeah. are, you are on your way to the city. <laughs> What is it called? No one knows. It's just the city. But that's almost never really true. Um, there might be one city that is exponentially larger than lots of others, but there will be other population centers. And so it's like, is there one where it's so much larger than all the others? Or are there a lot that are all cities of maybe, you know, 20 to 30,000 instead of one giant million person city? And that could also affect the rest of your world building and, and how people travel, you know, how often do they travel between them? Do they have the chance to make that comparison? Is there someone who goes around trying the best sandwich in every city? <laughs> Is that an option available to them? Did they make a reality TV show out of it? Should we hit up some um, live on air world building? Oh my goodness. We've, we've kind of slacked on that for the past, the we, past few it, episodes, it, but I feel like we should dive back in. And I was going to say, it has not been our biggest priority of late, but, you know, <laughs> maybe we should, maybe we do need to, to, to hop back in there and make <laughs> well, it. And we had realized that, um, that Cass needs, needs her own, her own her corner own... of the world, her own little corner. I do. I do. And... I, I thought about it, and I, I have I have some thoughts. So yeah, Rowena's main area was section eleven, which is that archipelago of islands the right there. I see that, there. yes. And mine was section twelve, though I focused mostly on the purpley Mediterranean. I see that, thing. yes. And Alex gotcha. was the northern parts of section eight, which yes. was her desert people. I Their see desert that. Desert people. Peoples. Cool. We have not hit up. Oh, and then we had section thirteen was our we did we did a thing on that as well. 
Yes. Actually, it was in section 14, but it was the 13 families. Which, oh, section, you know, okay. that's not, that's not confusing okay. at all. No, <laughs> we should just switch those. <laughs> and at some okay. point, we've done, like, we've done little bits and pieces of building this cool world that we made a full world map for and have only, like, scratched the surface of what it could be. And hopefully in the future, maybe the beautiful people in our Discord will, will want to, like, take elements of it and make it somewhat their own we'll see it'll be I wonder, it can be fun. I wonder if we could yeah we could use like world anvil or something to to sort of create the wiki for it and and add things as we go that's a thought for some time when someone has the time for it okay so <laughs> when we have thoughts again <laughs> <laughs> when when thoughts happen when when thoughts so I feel like the idea I was having could probably fit in like either one or 13. I mean, maybe okay. anywhere in that sort of left continent, but because, okay. So here was the thought that I had, which was I, I liked the idea of something structured like the Nile Delta and river, but in a cool to cold climate. Mm. So it's a place where, you know, most of the civilization is like a thousand miles long and two miles wide because the further you get from the river or the, and the further upriver you get, it starts turning more and more into inhospitable territory. So like the Delta area, fertile enough, you can grow some things there. It fans out and there's some space. But as you go further upriver or further away from the river, it starts turning more and more into tundra. And I, just, I know I like the idea of having a very long, skinny civilization. <laughs> I like it. And then, and then, yeah. like, there'd be some differences between like the people who live on the river and then like fur traders who live out on the tundra and bring their wares in. I thought about, I took, I took notes and everything on, on my ideas because that's the kind of human I am. Um, that's why I, you're I, on this show, Cass, because you're that kind know, of human. <laughs> I'm that kind of human. Um, I was imagining a vaguely like. Dutch to Scandinavian flavor. I'm imagining an industrious people, but when they party, they frickin' party. Uh, I thought of some major exports, perhaps being fur, paper, and ice. You know, ship ice to people so they can oh yeah um, preserve their their meats and and maybe make some ice cream even. Um, yeah, those were my major civilization thoughts. And then I also had city thoughts, but I think everyone was supposed to think of city thoughts for today. Yes, maybe, so. we were. That was our homework. <laughs> that was our homework. I, I think I think for that, like that section, like in the northern part of, of section one, like in subsection yeah. D, like that's a good spot yeah. for that. Like that, that, that works and, really you know, well. That that little continent is is entirely unrepresented at this point. So it would be nice right. to branch, to I branch claim left, it. as it were. I claim it in the name of Morris. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Not to put you on the spot, but did did you have a name picked out for it, or, or not for that... the overall civilization? I came up with a city okay. name, but not a, a okay. culture name yet. But I'll think so about we'll, that one some more. We'll put a pin in that. Yeah. For another time. Or maybe maybe we'll even put that up for our listeners at some point to give us suggestions. That's always they fun. They have some yeah. banger ideas. Throw them at me. Well, Marshall, do you want to tell us about your city for your, your okay. Mediterranean folks? So the city, I don't have a name for the city or anything like that yet because names are hard. <laughs> but so the city I'm thinking of, it's within like that whole like that within that little mediterranean-esque sea where there's a lot of tiny islands too and i want there to be a city that is like on one of those islands and it's recognized both as a trading hub but also as a very as as a center of culture and art and it is utterly dependent on the mainland because they can't grow anything there worth anything but because but because it's like considered such a great place to go the mainland is really keen on making sure that it stays a cool vibrant and 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 excellent city that is the center of trade and i think they'll have they will have like some singular resource that makes it worth that while like it's 
it's a terrible place, but it's got, in terms of growing things, but it's got a lot of, like, maybe not gold, but, like, a useful metal that everyone's like, yeah, we need, we need that metal, and so we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do trade with these people to mine it. But also, the way the island is physically would make it really hard to actually just invade, so that's why nobody, like, just makes war on it, because it's a lot easier just to, like, nicely make trade and use it as a party town because it's a fun party town, but also they have this one metal there. And so we're going to we're going to have good trade with that. So that's my that's my general idea in, in, in a nutshell. I have a question. Is sure. It, is it like someplace that people go like on vacation? Is it like a tourist? Town oh, it is or? absolutely a tourist <laughs> town that is. 95% like they're there the city itself is built on the idea that people are coming here and they're going to come here and they're going to want to eat well and they're going to want to be like lying on the beach and they're going to want to dance all night and they're going to want to just have a good time it's Ibiza but you know I was about to say fantasy <laughs> <laughs> Ibiza yeah and that's what I they do I feel like you could I feel like you could make its resource even something like bizarre yeah I'm, I'm thinking of like the snails that were used to make like Tyrian purple dye, or maybe there's a really the exact same thing. I, of course, of course, I we love were both this. having that thought. I wouldn't have thought of um, that, but I love it so or much. Like maybe there's a weird mushroom that like gets people like super buzzed, and that's why this is a party city because I don't know. But like I feel like something bizarre would be a good draw. Like it only grows in this one place, and it. I, I like the idea like that it's like, like an aphrodisiac octopus. Something looks something totally yeah. looks. <laughs> yes, I like this a lot. That's that's a lot better than it being because the idea of a that it's something very like you know very luxury, very very high, but also part of why it's a party city. I like that. I'm like it can be snails that you both use as a dye and secrete something that's you know a little hallucinogenic, <laughs> and you know you you come to you this have, city, man. You gotta lick a snail. Yeah, yeah. You city. come to the it's city. Trip. You have an escargot plate. You wake up four days later. <laughs> you go home and you tell nobody what happened. <laughs> what happens on the island city stays on the island. Exactly. <laughs> and it's a good time for all. I love it. I love it. Except the sanitation workers, because boy, they see something. Oh, they, they see some things. <laughs> I'm looking at my islands and I, I think I had um, mentioned before with my, my little area is that it's, it's kind of a united um, sort of confederacy of principalities. So each one is going to have at least one quasi decent sized city. But I think that there is um, kind of a major um, port city that is so on the biggest island there's kind of a little knob that comes out and there would be a really nicely defensible harbor in there so i think that the um biggest port city in 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 the archipelago is is right there um but that is not where most of the naval capability is because on the other side of that island there is a really big little inlet that would be hard to get to without anyone noticing. So I think the majority mm -hmm. of their naval um, power is actually like sequestered back there. So you have a port city that's like, it, it's, it's lightly defended, but it's not your major naval like installation. So it doesn't have um, a major like military kind of feel to it. Um, and I think that that particular city is, um, it's not as fun as Marshall's. People still have fun there, but it's more of a trade um, trade hub. And I think that we had talked about before, there's a lot of speculation um, as a business in this archipelago because they're sending a lot of things out and then waiting to get money until later. So you've got a lot of um, banks, counting houses, lawyers, all kinds of things like that. Um, so, so no looking snails. But um, I imagine that there are a lot of people who um, like to, to let loose after a long day of running tabulations. 
So there's probably a, a pretty bustling nightlife. There's an opera house. There are cabarets with music and, and things of that nature. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just had this weird random idea based on what of the sanitation workers in my city that like being like a priesthood, like it's a sacred order of the cleaning. I like that. <laughs> That it's it is this this sacred duty of keeping everything tidy and clean and maybe, and maybe this actually unites our world. It's the only thing constant across our entire <laughs> world is there's the secret priesthood of the sanitation workers. The veneration of the cleaners, yes. Yeah. I, I like it. I like it a lot. Okay. So Cass, your city in your Yeah. Yeah. So I figure and like I said, I'm sort of thinking about the Nile and Egyptian development. And so the Delta probably has a few sizable port cities stores scattered along it. But I think the main city for the cultures, the sort of capital, would be sort of at the choke point where the river starts to fan out into the Delta. And, and then there's probably other settle, settlements probably decreasing in size as you go upriver and it gets colder and, and less... You get ice flows and things like that, so you can't build as large a settlement there. So the biggest one's probably at that choke point. I decided I was going to call it Ulland, U-L-L-A-N-D-E. And I think of it as sort of simultaneously old and new. I think sometime in recent decades, it had like a thousand-year flood. And so a bunch of the inner city, the oldest city right along the river, got flooded out and has been rebuilt. And so the inner portion is where people have lived the longest, but a lot of it is the newest and it's been more structured and more grid-like than the portions a little further away from the river, which are sort of newer. People haven't been living there as long, but the buildings are now older than the buildings in the old part of town. Um, and it's a little more hectic and chaotic and, and not as organized as you get a little further out. So yeah, and I think it's probably very much a, a government center. It's sort of a clearinghouse for everything up and down river and where they have lots of their lawyers and lots of their government folk and probably a lot of the important people there also have houses elsewhere on the river which is where they do their partying perhaps it's even unseemly perhaps perhaps this is part of this culture being like mostly industrious but only having like occasional like wild blowouts if you don't have your wild blowout in the capital that's super tacky you do that <laughs> someplace else you take that either to your country estate or if you're not wealthy enough for country estate you just like go out into the plains and have a big old bonfire and have your festivities out there. You don't do it inside the city. That's just tacky. It's very gauche. I imagine, so, I imagine there being like really, really well run permit offices in your city. Yeah. That's what I'm reason. thinking. <laughs> I'm just seeing yeah. that. They, they, like, they very strictly monitor like how many furs you get, how many trees you can, you can take down. Do you have a, do you have a permit? For, for that bear that you're you skinned. <laughs> well, that makes sense because like if they're a place where the natural resources aren't as abundant, they would have to care more about that. About like, yeah. um, mm -hmm. that deer skin looks like you killed something a little too young. I'm going to need some documentation. Do you have a, do you have a fawn license? <laughs> this does not match up what I got from the magistrate of your, your, your sector. So we got a problem here. Yeah, I think I think that's really cool. I think that fits a lot with with what you're, what you're vibing with. I like it. I like it a lot. I like your cities. Rad. Awesome. I want to go to I want to go to Snail Licking Island. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't want to go to Snail Licking? You're gonna have to name it, or I'm snail just gonna keep calling it that. And... <laughs> I'll do some like conlang work, and then like, <laughs> but like have it be that the name of the island translated is just Snail Lick Island. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds so much prettier in the native tongue <laughs> and on that note dear listeners <laughs> thank you for joining us and we're sorry <laughs> think for yourself I'm not <laughs> I regret nothing <laughs>
Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on August 5th, in which we have a big panel to talk about race and racism in fantasy worlds with Kay Tempest Bradford, Kay Veloso, and Sarah Guan. Going to be quite a fascinating and educational episode, and I really hope you tune in for it. We really hope you like this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. Mm-hmm.